I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 53, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 1, pages 210 to 216 to 217. Who do we have here today? Oh, we have our guests today are Teresa, Lisa, Carl, Mike, Josh and myself, of course. All right, you ready? Also, the ever-efficient Berlin police had Eulenburg's name on their pink list for homosexual incidents purported to have occurred before Wilhelm II had come to power. However, the subject of same-sex relations was so taboo that it was never spoken of in polite circles and only in whispers in private, lest the accused demand satisfaction in a duel. Also, it bears repeating that the Liebenberg Circle, though small in number, cast a wide net over Wilhelminian society. If Eulenburg ever went down on charges of sodomy, which he eventually did, many of his friends and associates would also be drawn into the wake of the scandal, not excluding the Kaiser himself. One of Eulenburg's most cherished friends was Count Kuno von Molke, commander of the Berlin garrison, a title one should take with a grain of salt, since the only military distinction that the poor Mulkey could claim was that he had a knack of falling off his horse during maneuvers. It has always been assumed that Eulenburg and Mulkey were involved sexually, although some writers, including Hull, say there is no evidence to confirm this belief. We do know that the two men were constant companions that Molke addressed Eulenburg by the feminized form of Philip, Feline, and that they engaged in a highly romanticized correspondence when they were apart. Also, Eulenburg was intensely jealous and upset when Molke married, an oddity in itself since he was married, or better said, well, married with eight children to demonstrate that he had not found normal marital relations beyond the pale of his sexual instincts. In the spring of 1894, the Kaiser appointed Eulenburg to one of Germany's most important diplomatic posts as Germany's ambassador to Vienna, even though the Count never showed any special aptitude in the diplomatic field. Here the Count was able to mix business with pleasure. He began to regularly patronize some of the city's most notorious bathhouses, where he eventually fell into the hands of bad company. The foreign office in Berlin was called upon to assist the ambassador in paying out a large sum, over 60,000 kronen, taken from the office's slush fund to pay off the blackmailers. In August 1897, Eulenburg arranged to have Molke appointed as military attaché to Vienna. Unfortunately for both men, Molke brought his wife Lily with him, and it was not long before quarrels over her husband's inordinate attachment to the Count led to a public scandal and a divorce. Molke was quickly shuffled back to Berlin, where he advanced up the military ladder to a major general in the manner of Gilbert and Sullivan's first Lord of the Admiralty, Right Honorable Sir Joseph Porter, KCB. Enter Maximilian Hardin. In 1892, two years after his forced retirement, Bismarck contacted the popular and respected journalist Maximilian Hardin, an ardent German nationalist and admirer of the ex-chancellor. He informed him that a coterie of Senedi, that is, male homosexuals, had attached themselves like barnacles to the Kaiser, and that these men posed a threat to the country's interests and national security. 
Their first loyalty, he said, was not to any country, creed, or class, but to their own kind. Bismarck told Hardin that the ringleader of these sexual subversives was none other than the Kaiser's favorite, Count von Eulenburg. Hardin took the information under advisement, but did not immediately act upon it. Like many bourgeois Jewish liberals, he was on record as opposing paragraph 175, so he could not be accused of intolerance towards homosexuals. Nevertheless, as a great admirer of Bismarck and an ardent German nationalist, he took Bismarck's warning seriously. In 1893, Hardin began a lengthy, ongoing series of editorials and articles in his weekly newspaper, Die Zukunft, that attacked Eulenburg and his Liebenberg circle without alluding to the Count's personal vices. His objective was to remove the Count and his appointed hirelings from positions of power and public trust. In the meantime, Hardin began collecting information on Eulenburg's numerous sex partners and intimate friends that included Count Kuno von Molke and Baron von Richthofen, head of the Berlin police. He also learned of Eulenburg's blackmail intrigue in Vienna and that Eulenburg's wife had begun divorce proceedings against her husband. Hardin was now prepared to take more decisive action against the Kaiser's favorite, who had been elevated to first prince on January 1, 1900, a scandal in its own right that created much ill will against Wilhelm II. In 1902, Hardin forced Eulenburg into an early but temporary retirement from public life by threatening to expose his secret life as a homosexual. The prince, already despondent over the death of his mother and in poor health, capitulated and retreated to Schloss Liebenberg, his country estate north of Berlin. It was not until early 1906 that Eulenburg returned to court to reactivate his Wildian Camarilla homosexual band. He also resumed his political and diplomatic forays at court. This time it was rumored with an eye on the chancellorship. When Hardin heard that Eulenburg was back in circulation and that the Kaiser had decided to reward him for his services to the crown with Prussia's highest honor, the ultimate symbol of Prussia's heroic aristocratic warrior state, the Order of the Black Eagle, he traded in his kid gloves for a pair of steel gauntlets. The Love Comte debacle, fact or fiction. The idea that Eulenburg and his clique represented an actual but not merely theoretical threat to the fatherland is alleged to have been brought to Hardin's attention by the imperial chancellor, Bernhard Prince Heinrich Bülow, who was a former close friend and political ally of Eulenburg in the 1890s. Bülow was reported to have informed Hardin that the Liebenberg Circle had played a key role in Germany's humiliating diplomatic defeat at the International Algeciras Conference held in April 1906, at which France's sphere of influence over the hotly contested mineral-rich and strategic African protectorate of Morocco was formally recognized. Negotiators for the French delegation competently played diplomatic hardball at the conference because they had inside information that Germany was not willing to go to war to challenge France's hegemony in the region. At this point in our story, we encounter the shadowy figure of Raymond Lecomte, a secretary at the French embassy in Berlin, and a close friend of Eulenburg from the early 1880s. Although he was not an intimate Liebenberger, he was a known pederast, the kind of man that attracted rumors of dark intrigues wherever he went. The Paris Foreign Office, of course, 
knew all about the unnatural sexual appetites of the king of the pederasts since Lecomte had gotten into difficulties with the Munich police on his last posting, whereupon he had been transferred to the French embassy in Berlin and later became a member of the Berlin Potsdam homosexual cabal. In the early spring of 1906, Lecomte was said to have obtained secret diplomatic information on the Morocco situation as a result of his contacts with his fellow homosexuals in the Liebenberg circle that convinced him that Germany's saber-rattling was all bravado. He was reported to have relayed this information to his superiors, who in turn transmitted the information to their representatives at the Algeciras conference, thereby giving the French an advantage in the negotiations. By the time the Germans discovered Lecomte's treachery, he was safe at the French home office in Paris, where he was congratulated and given a new diplomatic posting. The Lecomte affair appeared to be filled with intrigue and duplicity, but according to Hull, there was no great betrayal by anyone, at least in this particular incident. The French did not need Lecomte to tell them of the Kaiser's specific intentions with regard to Morocco. According to Hull, Wilhelm II, much to the shock and chagrin of his foreign office, had already revealed Germany's position on the Moroccan question in at least two public speeches given in March and May 1905, months before the Algeciras conference began. The important point here is that Hardin did believe that Lecomte, the Lecomte betrayal and the complicity of the Liebenbergers in the Morocco matter. For him, it became the proverbial last straw. Starting in November 1906 and continuing through the spring of 1907, Hardin launched a one-man media campaign in Die Zukunft against Eulenburg and Molke Eka Tutu. For Berliners who could decipher the coded references to homosexuality in the articles, the picture that Hardin painted of the moral corruption and political intrigues engendered by the Liebenberg coterie was plain enough. That the Kaiser should appear to be heavily influenced and side with these degenerates was even worse. Eulenburg was asked by the Kaiser, who appeared to be still in his corner, what he intended to do about Hardin's libelous articles. Eulenburg, trained in the law, took the least dangerous way out. He publicly denied he had violated paragraph 175, then privately turned himself over to the state prosecutor of his district to have him conduct an investigation of his past life. In the meantime, the crown prince became the bearer of bad news to his father. He presented the Kaiser with hard evidence against Orenberg and Molke, including some of their intimate correspondence and police files on key homosexuals within the Kaiser's entourage. The Kaiser, egged on by Eulenburg's enemies in the military, issued an imperial ultimatum. Eulenburg was informed that he must clear himself or go into exile. Eulenburg resigned from diplomatic service on June 28. On July 28, 1907, the investigation by the state prosecutor turned up no evidence against Eulenburg, and the prince was cleared of the charges without a public trial. But this did not help him because Mulke had been forced into court action. After Hardin had refused to engage in a duel with Mulke, the Count was left with no other choice than to sue for libel. Although he wanted to bring criminal char libel charges against Hardin on the advice of his legal counsel, he had settled for a civil libel suit. The Hardenberg-Eulenberg Hardenberg trials and mistrials. 
Over the next 14 years, the publicity surrounding the multiplicity of Harden Eulenberg Molke related trials exposed the German people to an unprecedented glimpse of homosexual life at all levels of society, but most especially among the nation's blue bloods and military elite. Molke versus Harden, the first of a long series of sensational trials monitored by the international press, opened on October 23, 1907, with Chief Justice Isenbell presiding. Harden had excellent legal representation. Molke, who appeared in court wearing makeup, was obviously left less competently represented. The three key witnesses for the defense were Lily von Elbert, Molke's ex-wife, a soldier named Bullhart from the Potsdam Regiment, and Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, Molke's former wife, who admitted that she did not know of the existence of homosexuality until the trial, testified that her husband ended his conjugal duties only days after they were married because he was in love with his filly, Eulenburg. All right. Bullhart testified that he was an eyewitness to a number of homosexual orgies involving officers and enlisted men from his postum regiment, including Lieutenant General Wilhelm Count von Hanu, commander of the elite guard du Corps, and a blood relative of the emperor and Count von Moltke. The Kaiser had already released both men from active duty. Magnus Hirschfeld was called by the defense as a forensic expert and the foremost authority on homosexuality in the world. In keeping with Hardin's strategy to show that Moltke was a sexual invert, but not necessarily an active sodomite, Hirschfeld testified that homosexuality was an inborn condition and that from the evidence already presented and his own observations, he believed Berlin's top military commander was psychically homosexual. On October 29th, Hardin was acquitted by by his victory, but his victory was short-lived. Moltke, now publicly disgraced, was ordered to pay court costs. The public felt that justice had been done. The Kaiser felt otherwise, and a legal challenge was quickly put into motion. Justice Isenbell, who incidentally was a longtime foe of the Hirschfeld of Hirschfeld, and who believed that homosexuals had the morals of dogs, declared a mistrial on the basis of faulty procedure. The verdict against Moltke was set aside, and the state prosecutor was instructed to order a new trial. In the meantime, Uhlenberg, who had been publicly identified with Moltke, was drawn into a separate court battle. The trials were beginning to take on an aura of a Keystone Cops comedy, but few Germans were laughing. On November 6, 1907, the trial of Bulow versus Brand opened and closed in Berlin. The self-avowed pederast and antichrist, Adolf Brand, who had worked with Hirschfeld against paragraph 175, was charged with libeling Chancellor Bulow by accusing him of having a homosexual tryst with Germanhut Schaefer, his privy counselor. It appears that Brand had a number of sources for his charges against Below. Two names that came to the fore were the political intriguer Count Guthner von du Schulenberg, 
who fled the country as the brand trial opened and the journalist Joachim Gelson, who stated that he got the information from Magnus Hirschfeld. In the end, it was Brand who was left holding the bag. All he knew and had reported in his magazine, Der Eugene, was what his sources had passed on to him, that Boulot had been blackmailed because of his homosexuality and that he and Schaefer were seen in a compromising pose at an all-male gathering hosted by Prince von Eulenburg. But he had no witnesses to confirm this story or back up his charge against Boulot. Below then took the stand and declared himself to be innocent of any violation of paragraph 175. His morals and manners were blameless, he said. Eulenberg then took the stand and swore under oath that he had never engaged in either sodomy or same-sex acts and that he was never present at orgies described by Brand. Further, he said vigorously, resented the fact that ju that genuine and natural male friendships were being made the basis for calumnious accusations. The trial was concluded in one day. Brand was found guilty of defamation of character and was sentenced to a prison term of 18 months. Blow had defended his honor. With the libel retrial, the retrial of Hardin coming up, all Berlin was anxious to see if Count von Moltke could do the same. The Moltke versus Hardin retrial debacle. Unlike the first trial, the second round between Count Van Moltke and, and Hardin that opened on December 18, 1907, again under Judge Isnabel, saw the prosecution on the offensive. Medical witnesses were called to discredit the testimony of Fro von Elby as the ravings of a classic, hysteric, and jealous woman. Both Moltke and Uhlenberg took the stand, and in a performance reminiscent of Oscar Wilde's brilliant monologue in praise of the Greek love, at his second trial, they defended the idealized spirit of male friendship and esprit de corps as being in keeping with the finest of German traditions. Uhlenberg, was, Uhlenberg, the most important witness, repeated the sworn statement testimony he had given at the Brand trial that he had never violated paragraph I-175 and that he had never engaged in swinish, swinish behavior, sodomy, or dirty sex, mutual masturbation. But the most surprising turn of events came when Hirschfeld reacted retracted his original professional opinion that Moltke was an effeminate homosexual. The case of the Count's homosexual orientation, he said, had not been proven. It was a humiliating moment for Hirschfeld, and the hostile press had a field day exposing his incompetency. On January 3, 1908, a verdict was rendered. The time against Hardin, who was given a four-month trial, month prison term that he probably served under house arrest. The Kaiser was ecstatic and the news and made the, excuse me here. The Kaiser was ecstatic with the news and made plans to raise the in, innocence Moltke and Uhlenberg to higher post. He wanted his dear friends back. The public was convinced that the original verdict against Moltke was the right one. The large international press corps, like everyone else, thought that Uhlen the Uhlenberg affair was over and departed, leaving scandalized Berliners to lick their wounds and recover their moral equilibrium. 
In actuality, his 1908 conviction, Hardin remained more determined than ever to get a conviction against Eulenburg and thus ensure the prince's permanent exclusion from the Kaiser circle of political and diplomatic advisors. And we're going to end here on yeah, page 215. Okay. Yeah. All right. So who's taking over? All right, this is the part when our podcast, we're going to have some comments, analysis, and uh, and we have our guest here wants to say something. Did, 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 was that motioning or you didn't want to talk? Okay, not yet. So uh, that's fine. So you don't have to. But uh, above all, above everything, all right, John? All right, we're going to hold on here and and uh, I think it's uh, so I'm just going to talk as if it's well, continued. It yeah, it stayed on. Yeah. Let's start with the commandment to pray. We always want there's corruption in the church. We're we're becoming aware as lay people of the corruption and we are unwilling to accept it without a response. And that response, and we believe this corruption destroys doctrine and people. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Okay. And uh, yes. above all, the commandment to pray, just so that we prayer of the church, the commandment to pray, because everybody here, uh, we regularly pray. And Jesus, we start with Jesus as the center. Jesus has commanded us to do as he did. On many occasions, he said, pray ask, seek in my name. He gave us a formula of prayer and what is known as the Lord's Prayer. He taught us that prayer is necessary, that it should be humble, vigilant, persevering, confident in the Father's goodness, single-minded, and in conformity with God's nature. With that in mind, I just encourage everybody who comes into these podcasts and, and, our, and, and what we consider the, what I, I would call, I don't, I've never asked it, but disciplinary ministry on errant members of the clergy. Yes. That's what we would call it, uh, that many clergy cannot rise to the occasion and do that. So we, we build on a foundation of prayer. And we remember that this is about Jesus Christ, where we're... we're we're trying to be good Christians, and these men, we have witnessed them join together with others and oppose us. We have witnessed the death of destru and destruction of community and people. Is that trees, trees? Yes, absolutely. We witnessed it right in our own parish. So, so what we have is we have this podcast, and I'm going to try to, we're just not um, talking about ideas. We are actually implementing ideas and showing people how to implement ideas. And uh, we've prayed. Go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, what I wanted to say, just another thing popped in my head, is that with this, so we see this corruption. We're reading these books because we started diving into how how bad everything really is in the church. Um, and if it's happening in one parish, it, it could be happening in another. And voices that are being lost, we we stand for we stand for those voices to to have a, a spot in the church and to not just leave the church. That they have hope. That's right. That's right. Voices. And in fact, uh, we may not agree with all the voices, but you start with voices. And that comes right out of, of the gospel, right out of what the Holy Spirit's preserved for us is our father. Our father in the beginning of creation in Genesis said he spoke the word to darkness and chaos and it brought forth light. 
and it brought forth uh, order, the day of the ordering of the world. Chaos was gone. Let's go back when you begin this. So uh, we're, we're talking to people who come in contact with what we're doing. So we have the podcast. Uh, we try to do a campaign on letters to, to when you write, you improve the way you think. You know, and uh, Carl was blessing people's, I want to say, about money. You were kind of indifferent about what you were doing, and we took you to the woodshed about that. You want to say, are you still blessing sin with your money, Carl? Are you thinking about that? You know? So we're talking about funding. You be careful how you spend your money. You remember that? That was a poke in the ribs. You said, no, I don't want to bless sin with my money. But as Catholics, we're good givers. We'd give a lot. We give a lot. We're supposed to reach out to others, and what you do for the least of my brethren, you do for the Lord. That's right. And be responsible, though. Yeah, in a responsible way. Now, I'm not not reaching out to people that are irresponsible or not living right. And that's right. So how do you do that? How, when you come to this, because this was a shocker. You know, I was joking. We had a little poking on that. All right. I didn't want you to take me out of your will over that. (laughs) So, so uh, we, we have a little, it's difficult. We have humor. You talk to people who work in the emergency room and the uh, gallows humor. You work, it's difficult to deal with this, but you can do with it, deal with it. So let's begin. How do you come what is the compass? How do you come from, you leave this darkness? One, do two things. You begin to talk about truth or think about truth or share truth and clean your room. Just begins with something simple. So we start with, again, Scripture, Matthew chapter 7. And uh, think about behavior and belief when you're talking and you're seeing your, your priest. Because we've all experienced a, a duality. The public side of the priest the private side, and so this duality. But here's the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew, and I want to cross-reference to Luke 6, 43, 44. Matthew 7, 15. Think about behavior and belief. Beware of false prophets, uh, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of uh, grapes of thorns or figs of thistles. Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil truth. Fruit. That's powerful. That's in Scripture. That is so powerful. And uh, uh, so, even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. And for me, the destruction of innocence the destruction of community. Therese Bill, for no other reason than being associated with you, is is kicked off of, me, is is driven from community, at whatever you call that community. Yes, that was actually like a, a piercing in my heart to see him be um, just removed like he was, like he was nothing. That everything that he had done that far was nothing. Because of because of me standing up for someone who needed help. And you, and it, you were warned about that. Oh, I was warned about, warned about yes. associating with me and warned about associating with other people by a Catholic right. priest. Yes, and, and the way I'm taught and brought up in the Catholic Church and in my belief in the Church is that we are to help the vulnerable. We are to, you know, and, and the, the route I chose to take to help this person got me kicked out of the Church and my husband just because he's an innocent bystander. 
uh, Mike had told me uh, that he had had to get this lady out of jail because she was suicidal, and and uh, it, she was she had mental problems, but uh, she that was the wrong place. Uh, you know, he's the scare of people that are are hurting and sick, and she was suicidal, and that was the right thing, but I was condemned for it. And these are men that we pay their salaries. So begin to think about some of the things that we're now thinking about is be careful what you pay. If you control, money is the mother's milk of church corruption. Money is the mother's milk of church politics. And I want to add, you know, and speaking um, to Carl, you know, and he has this, um, you know, the, the belief that, you know, he does need to give his money to the church. My husband feels the same way. He feels, you know, he feels that. But but in the end, you know, when you realize that your church um, has to give 30 percent of their money to the diocese, and if you feel your diocese is corrupt, um you need to really, I think you really need to look. You need to take your head out of the ground. You need to look at how the money's being spent. And are you happy with that? Do you have people in your community that are being underserved? Is your Catholic Church helping those people? Um, we need to think about where our money's going. Well, you have choices. We're not saying not to no, serve or anything. My husband is yeah, the same way. In fact, I, I still give to the church because that's something my husband wants to do. You know, I don't necessarily agree, um, you know, but yet I can see why he feels the way he does. And, you know, as Catholics, um, it's a difficult thing to not give to your church. But we do give. Oh, we all we, give. we all give. We may, we may not just give to the church, but we give. We're united. All of us are united. That's right. Yes. And not only that, we give to the church, but I, I even go so far as to say to the bishop, I'm giving your money to somebody else. Okay, that's what I'd like to know. Right. I'm giving the parish's right. money to somebody in Asia, another right. bishop, another priest. And aren't we, Mike, aren't we supposed to be in this third millennium um, uh, evangelizing Asia? That's right. Yes. That, there is a pastoral plan for the church, overall church, that maybe your priest, your bishop might want to dissent from by not telling you. Let's continue on with these words. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cut, uh, cut and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by the fruits ye shall know them. That's so powerful because you got to judge. We hear about not judging. When they're talking about not judging, I think they're talking about don't be condemning people to being nowhere reconciled with the Lord. You know, I think that's what it means. You always hope while there's life. That's why we work with the bishop. Right. You know, and yes. and we're right for the Carmel brand that if there are devils in your monastery, Carmel would teach John of the Cross. Don't leave the monastery. Do your duty. If at noon meal you're with a devil to the left and the right, don't leave Catholicism or the church. Do your duty. So again, uh, but a corrupt tree bring forth evil fruit. That's pretty powerful. Now, let me continue on. So, uh, so one, the idea is compass point. Are you, are you working? Do you make a judgment? Are you working with a priest who's corrupt, a bishop who's corrupt, or staff who's corrupt? You know them by their fruit. They're not going to cure. They're going to destroy you're going to, they're going to lack the capacity because they are not united with the Lord. They're going to, you, there's a trail of dead bodies behind their life. Pretty much. That's it. Yeah. 
You know, if you're not going to go along with, with with an evil priest, you have to discern. And I think that was probably one of the hardest things for me to realize um, that I had to do that with a priest. That was very difficult for me. And um, I thought that I wasn't being obedient. I wrestled with that, but I kept coming back to the teachings. And it was, it you know, the bottom line is you have to use discernment and judgment and um, when you do this, and you have to stay very close to God in prayer. Let me continue with whom I think is, is, is a saint. This is Fulton Sheen. He's got the, uh, the moral universe. This is page 31. Listen to what he says. Since the universe is moral, it follows that the supreme choice which lies before us is that of obeying the law of God or rebelling against it. Let me repeat that. Since the universe is moral, it follows that the supreme choice which lies before us is the, that of obeying the law of God or rebelling against it. H- how does that work out? That at least requires a judgment to know that you're obeying the, the law of God. Christ came and taught, but he also commanded certain things. So the commandments are considered law, the teachings we want to conform with. So think about that. It's just, there's just a... a there is just so much that we have to think about of what, what if Christ what if Christ would have um, not stood up to the Pharisees and the scribes? What if he would have backed down? You know, he had to make he had to make some judgment calls. That's right. That's right. And so we have the uh, you're going to come across where you have the uh, you, you, you know you're going to have to deal with people. And you're going to have to have a steady love of the good, though it be persecuted. Were you you persecuted for loving good? Yes. Okay. Or the steady scorn of evil. Were you persecuted for scorning evil? Yes. And even though it be enthroned, that means even though evil be in power, you scorn it. Have you heard that teaching before, Carl? I mean, this is, uh, that doesn't it make sense? Yes. Let me continue. And, uh. Uh, I want to now go into, so one, you got to judge. You got to know there's good and evil out there. And here are some of our heroes. This is in the 1500s. We have John of the Cross. And he talks about, first of all, why aren't there more saints doing this? You know, you and I talked about there's a lot of people that want to ignore the problems. They rather put up with bad and evil than change or, or have problems in their life. How, how many people has it driven out of the church? As I give you an example, my daughter that was brought up very Catholic and very good girl and uh, left the church because of the evil in the church. And how many others besides my daughter? Yes. I don't think if you ask that question, you're going to get numbers from the number, the actuary in at either the, the diocese or the parish. They don't tabulate that. Mm-hmm. That's sad. Yeah. They should. Do you it's agree? Yes. You know, yes. Let me let me continue here. This is page 604, The Collected Works of St. John of the Cross, The Living Flame of Love, 1979 edition, the Institute of Carmelite Studies. And we ride for the Carmel brand, which is the Mother's Order, Our Lady of Mount, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, Mother's Order. Continue this, uh, chapter 7, page 604. And here it ought to be pointed out that why there are so few who reached this high state of perfect union with God. It should be known that the reason is not because God wishes that there be only a few of these spirits so elevated. He would rather want all to be perfect, but he finds few vessels that will endure so lofty and sublime a work. 
since he tries them in little things and finds them so weak that they immediately flee from work, unwilling to be subject to the least discomfort and mortification. It follows that not finding them strong and faithful in that little, Matthew 25, 21 to 23, in which he favored them by beginning to hew and polish them, he realizes that they will be much less strong in these greater trials. Now, we heard about the 61 Protocols where the Vatican warned the bishops, do not ordain weak men from the Christian faith. Do not, or, and you're picking it up from O.V. Cruz, yeah. Archbishop. Do not ordain the weak or mediocre men because if you ordain a weak and mediocre man, you're going to get a weak and mediocre priest. Yeah. You ordain a one-legged man, you're going to get a one-legged priest. And that's why we have these problems. Right. And from my standpoint, this is my opinion, of my tribe, the lay tribe, we've been raped and robbed. Yeah. You know, I think of myself as a, a husband. You too can think of yourselves as husbands to a ravaged bride. That's the, that's the church. That's the church. Or the father of murdered children. That's the vocations, you know, and it's just unacceptable. Let me go on. Let me uh, let me go on here, and we'll, I'm going to come back to this next week too, but page 605. And here's the important pe people that hate contradiction and fighting. So think about this, folks. We've laying the foundation on making an argument that as that it is good to fight corruption in the church. It is good to challenge those who are weak and mediocre. It's good to push back against those who destroy community and destroy doctrine. Listen to John of the Cross. And if you have not wanted to forego peace and pleasure of your earth, which is your sensuality or contradicted in anything, or stir up a war, I do not know how you will endure and desire to enter the impetuous waters of spiritual tribulation and trials which are deeper. Let me repeat that. <clears throat> and if you have not wanted to forego the peace and pleasure of your earth, which is, sens is your sensuality, or contradict it in anything, or stir up a war, let me, or stir up a war, I do not know how you will desire to enter the impetuous waters of spiritual tribulation and trials which are deeper. And we're talking about, Randy Engels talking about corruption in the church. Yeah. And these men are very sensual. They're wanting to fill their appetites. They don't care what they come across. Destroying family, an attack on marriage, and nobody wants to war against them. Right. Yeah. Well, I was just, it just made me automatically think of... Um, you know, like the six-year-olds, the things like that in the church that well, were. Let me add some graphics to that yeah, six-year-old. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is the doesn't yeah, sound good on. No, it here's what it comes from for me. I'm I'm a little bit. Uh, many of you, if I came and knocked on your door as kids, Teresa, your parents wouldn't let you come out and play with me. Let me put it that way. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So, I want you to imagine a priest with his underwear down around his ankles in Pennsylvania, copulating in the mouth of a six-year-old. That's a disgusting, disgust. That's Somebody's a fact. Precious little boy. Yeah. Somebody's precious little six-year-old. Precious little six-year-old. Yes. And bishop, clergy of this diocese, your tribe did that to my tribe. And you know what? You didn't even have the common decency to clean him up. My tribe cleaned his hair. He had body fluids in his hair, his face, his neck. My tribe cleaned him up. And you don't want to talk about that. You don't want to talk about that. 
That's disgusting. Now you want to add on it? I did. I did the graphics. I don't, I, I don't really have a whole lot more to say. That that just came up when you know when we talk about how deep this is, and so we're talking about the history of it right now in the rite of sodomy. And we did read the networking part, and this this is how the networks were built. You know, um, early on, this is ingrained in our church. This is ingrained in the body of Christ. And we do have to stand up, you know, and, and you do. It's it's uncomfortable. It's not comfortable. It's the clericalism, the secrecy, yes. and the avoidance of scandal at all costs. Yes. That's why they didn't clean, the, wash up that little six-year-old boy. To me, that tells me. One of, the, one of them was, uh, uh, that uh, I don't know if it was in Randy Engel's book or not, but the little boy had, was told to wash his mouth out with uh, holy water. It's after, exa- after disgusting. That. It's disgusting. Disgusting. Yeah. This little kid, that little was another. Little boy. This little, little boy ran out, and uh, the clergy didn't even have the, the common decency to wash him up. Yeah. We washed, our tribe washed him up. That's disgusting. And uh, that's what we say often. Pathetic. Yeah. And, uh, and we have. So think about that. Because now we have. The report on the crisis in the Catholic Church in the United States, and this is the National Review Board for the Protection of Children and Young People. This came out. This is your bishops, my bishop and priests. This is your this is your board that talks about how you guys are more interested in avoiding scandal and the reputation than you are in truth. And this eagerness to forgive and forget failed to take into account the harm the offending priesthood cause, and the potential for repeated violations. Jesus did not fail to condemn when condemnation was called for. That's page 106. Jesus condemned when it was necessary. Absolutely. And there's, finally there's this haughty attitude of some bishops. I got that. I've experienced that. Mm-hmm. Haughty. Yes. Elitism. And uh, the bishop must lead with humility, not hubris. And it's just just absolutely disgusting. So let me continue. So when you, I, I, one, share your voice. When you write, you can think better. Share your voice as we are doing here because that's, there's something very mystical, very powerful. The, the psychologist, uh, what's his name, talks about sharing the voice? Um, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Yeah. That guy, have you heard about him? Jordan Peterson, YouTubing. Good. And you, he talks about, he's got a Bible series, Jordan Peterson, J-O-R-D-A-N, Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N. Look at some of the things that he talks about. Yes. And the betrayal, the betrayal that we have felt, that you have felt, that is very caustic to the, to the soul. And these bishops and these clergy don't see it. And they've shown, you know, the nice thing about it is when we're measuring their capacity, they lack the capacity. They are... Th- to be ordained does not mean you have unlimited capacity, that you can do anything and everything. We're seeing that they lack the capacity. Yes. We're seeing that that we have to come in and do things that they can't do. Right. Yes. Now, let they, me... They, they need eyes on them. They, they need eyes on them. They need people, lay people in the church. They need the eyes for people and the mouths. People speaking up and saying, you know, I don't like that a mentally ill person was treated like that. Um, I don't like that uh, all this sex is going on in the church. I want to know more. I want to know more of what you're doing. It does not have to be secret. It should not be secret. If you don't stop it, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. 
You've got to stop it. You can't let it go. That's right. And that's why we've got to let them know that there are people out there with minds and souls in the church, sitting in the pews, that care much about what's going on and where the church is headed. And we're finding out, folks, look, we're, we're, uh, I, I, we're just, just like average people. Yeah. There ain't no way in hell I'm going to get into Harvard or Oxford unless I'm a janitor, okay? So that doesn't mean you can't have a voice. My, my granddad was in Harvard, but he, he was a janitor. <laughs> yeah, we come from, we come from, uh, uh, well, we're just, that's family tradition then. We got people in low places. We are family tradition and we're voicing. That's why canon law, that's why canon law talks about human dignity to the point, you know, each person, you know, each one of us, we are as equal as, as the bishop as far as in our human dignity. That's powerful. I never that heard anybody talk about that. It's powerful. Yes, it is. That's that's what it is. And um, listen to my podcast. I'm talking about What's it. What's the name of your podcast? Um, the Call of the Laity. Is it D-O-L-W-3? And it's D-O-L-W-3, yes. I see Lansing Watcher Podcast 3. Yes. On Anchor. On Anchor, yes. Now that I have my technology back up and running, I will be doing another one. <laughs> you, you got electricity. <laughs> All right. Thanks to John. John, by the way, hit 52. Yes. Started like two months before. 53. Yeah, this yeah. one here. He started way. He is the father of much. Yes. Okay. And uh, so let's, let, we just want to encourage you with our voices. We're not perfect use of our voices, but above all, this motivates you and there's things that you can do. Again, tell the truth. If you can't tell the truth, begin to gather others who tell the truth. And that's why we have our affidavit ministry. We're going to be going up on our webcasting. I mean, our website that's under construction. We got our electrician here that's going to be electrifying us, and we may have some YouTube <laughs> going on. We got a lot going on, and it's just onesies and twosies. I did it 45 years. Yeah. Here is, we're now in Garagula Glange, and we're learning that not all are equal. Not all clergy, not all deacons, not all bishops are equal. And we have a Reverend Garagula Grange who taught in Rome. And some of the men that are telling us that, you know, you had you need permission to do, to talk about these things. They're telling us that. Is that right, Therese? Yes. You're telling yeah, us. You need permission. Yeah. Yes. And the other priests are saying, don't you, you, you shouldn't be writing to Bishop. Come and talk to me. Yes. We have rights to assert. We have rights to assert. These are the guys that are telling us that they were silent. They were lethargic as guardians. They were at, they had what you call laryngitis when the guy had his underwear wrapped around his ankles copulating in, in our tribe's children in Pennsylvania. They were silent. But when we try to do some good, man, they're right on it. You need permission. Yeah. Or they're taking people. Not only that, they went so far in our local community to take people off from public, uh, from serving, from lecturing, yeah. and from being Eucharistic ministers. Oh, they are on the hunt. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, that's what yeah. we witnessed. Yes, that's. Well, they're not passive. No, they do judge. Now, uh, and then I I take you to Garagou Lagrange, who taught a class in Rome. This was the professor who or, or that also taught John the the, uh, the great Saint John Paul II. The men that I know of couldn't get couldn't get into his class. They weren't smart enough. 
They couldn't cut the grade. These are the ones that want to. And, and we're the janitors at Harvard like we are. We're, we're just simple folks. And we got people telling us how the world operates and we should follow them. And these are the guys that they're, they are weak. They are mediocre intellects. They can't think. And they don't want to tell you what the church teaches. They want to tell you what they think it teaches. And they couldn't get into this professor's class. Let's see what he says. He's the teacher. And they couldn't even qualify as a student. Does that offend you when I talk like that, by the way? Okay. That categorization, is that okay? You sure? Oh, oh, yes, right. All right. God bless you. You're going to get something to eat now. <laughs> you can, when you're done eating, then you tell me what you really think. <laughs> so, I'm, I, my, John, you agree yeah, wholeheartedly yeah, with me. When I get closer to home, I'll yeah, tell you how You agree with everything yeah, I say. Yeah, yeah, Amen. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a priest. I see Josh over there smiling. I, I, see like, I feel like a priest at the ambo. Yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're wanting me to dismiss them. All right. Let me take you back to. This is 158, Volume 2 of Garagula Grange's The Three, let's see, I, I should know this by heart, the, uh, the Three Ages of the Interior Life, Prelude to Internal Life. You know, he says uh, at page 158, If thy eye be single, thy whole body shall be lightsome. Matthew 6.22. Just powerful. You know, and that's these appetites. How are these guys, how, how it is evil. And and, to, and it's also evil to be silent. I, I blame our clergy and you staff that you don't have a problem with the clergyman that's got his, his underwear wrapped around his ankle. You can't talk about that. You don't warn me about that. What about that poor mother of that priest in Upper Michigan? Right. She had, she, and her guy gets and she, ambushed. Yeah, and I'm sure she, she couldn't say much. I'm sure she couldn't. No, are you getting her uh, uh, amplified? In I a proper to way. We're going to cut your her. wages if I you don't amplify her. I'm not sure how to do that. How are you going to go without a meal today? I don't know. I know I'm in trouble for them, but I do need to know how to do that. <laughs> I'll get it back to you. I'll recharge you on that. So listen, listen how this goes. Behold, this is Jesus Christ himself. Christ himself expressed this when he said to his apostles, Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and simple as doves. Keep that in your mind. These are the words of Christ. Uh, Christian, uh, I'll start from the Christian prudence or holy discretion of which we have spoken should be accompanied by a virtue, by a virtue, simplicity, which is to all appearances quite different. Christ himself expressed this when he said to his apostles, Behold, I send you a sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and simple as doves. So you got to be prepared for this. And, uh, and, uh, we all have to take on that responsibility as Christians in this de-Christianization age. So that's just a, I want you to put that in your, make a mental note that those are the words of Christ. I don't know how you can exclude yourself from those words. Right. And I think to come against this, it takes backbone and guts. You can't be a, a sheep. <laughs> you you have to you have to stand up and and come against this crime. It, that's what God calls you to do. He didn't call you to be silent and be like sheep. He, he calls you to stand up for the, uh, against this. Right. 
Right. He gives he gives us all common sense. We have yeah. common sense, That's right? You know, and if you're you know the fear of you know the the priest or the bishop having um, that was one of my big things is that they were taught, they were educated, they were you know um, in God and theology and all of that, and I knew what was happening was wrong. But There's, they were perfect. But they were eyes. perfect in my eyes, yes. I yeah. thought that they were perfect. And I think a lot of people, a lot of Catholics, so we think like that. when I tell you, these guys that you thought were perfect probably didn't have good enough grades to get into to Garagu's, into the Roman class. Yes, yes. So it's helpful for me to understand that, yes. So he's the teacher of their teachers, and they wanted dissent. Right. It's like the eagle, eaglet, the eaglet criticizing the eagle. Yeah, yes. How do you do it, Mike? Huh? Did you want to say something? <laughs> I'm just going to laugh now. Yeah. So, love and conformity to the divine will. Here's one of the things that we're having. So we're telling you, if you're soldiers for Christ, soldierettes for Christ, you're going out there and you're fighting. This stuff, there's a there are on the shelf plans. Of, this is what I've experienced. So I share with you, love of conformity to the divine will. This is our pastor. I think there are signs of imperfect love. And this is exactly, I told Teresa, I said, I don't know what it is. I, what happened that tripwired him on what it was that was the instant that caused some problem. And I think he perceived maybe in me a lack of uh, gratitude or something. There's something odd because he thanked me uh, for what I did and then turned on me. Yeah. You know, it was just bizarre. I, I, I just bizarre. This is my own pastor turned on me and then started to hunt me and hunted other people. We'll get into that because we have the witness statements. We have the, uh, you know, the stuff that will, that's another phase. But consider this, if you're, if you're, if you're going along, because you, you're almost dumbfounded for, it's just like being stunned. You waste a lot of time. So we're taking that, we're trying to compress that period because there's civil war going on. There's, I don't think there's going to be a schism. I don't think this is the end of the world, but laity have to step up. And we're going to be taking more of a governance uh, role, particularly <coughs> watching how they spend our money. Transparency. Here's what, listen, this is how this priest who is a teacher in Rome talks about the signs of imperfect love. I love the way he says it's love, but it's imperfect love. St. Catherine of Siena indicates clearly in her dialogue the signs of mercenary love. Oh, I love that. We quoted this passage early in this work. The saint says in substance that love remains imperfect in the just man when in service of God, he is still too much attached to his own interests. When he still seeks himself and has an excessive desire of his own satisfaction, the same imperfection is then found in his love of his neighbor. In loving his neighbor, he seeks self, takes complacency, for example, in his own natural activity, in which he is, in which there is rash haste, egotistical eagerness, occasionally followed by coldness when his love is not returned, and he believes that he sees in others ingratitude, a failure to appreciate the benefits he bestows on them. That to me is my experience. I don't want to say if if you've had that experience, but that's what I see. Just and mercenary love. That's what Catherine of Siena told us in her dialogues, and she lived. Uh, she lived a few years ago, mm-hmm. and so it's been around. Mercenary love. Why is it not? Uh, seem you know in our in our country now, there's a fallen away in in, in our in not only our faith but other faiths. They we got more uh, babies born to people that are not married than people that are married. 
Uh, and it's it's a serious problem in this country. It's I never seen anything. I never thought I'd see anything like this in our country. Blessed by God, falling away like this. Yeah. Well, let me let me continue, and and we're almost uh, we're almost. You got about five minutes for us. Yeah. Well, if I stop short, will you still pay me? I don't have to keep talking. I got to be paid before I can well, pay you. Oh, oh, oh. All right. <laughs> well, I'll tell you right now. Page 203. The the huh? Still in Matthew. No, no, I, we're not still in I don't know. I'm going to I'm in the the three ages of the spirit. I don't know if he's still in Matthew. Uh, page 203, the compass and order of charity. I'm giving them concepts for your map of knowledge so that you can understand that one this is like a, 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 a hot a cold ice water in your face when you first experience this because you're cut out they isolate you they exclude you from community and then when you're isolated and excluded they begin to start to a whispers campaign to destroy you uh the compass and order of charity i'm in this book called the three ages of the spiritual life by garagou lagrange and i'm at this is uh, book two page 203 Again, the compass and order of charity. I like the idea of compass. It talks about maps, the compass points, and the order of charity. Therefore, our charity should be universal. It should know no limits. It cannot exclude anyone on earth. In purgatory or in heaven, it stops only before hell. It is only the the dam that we cannot love, uh, for they no longer... Uh, they are no longer capable of becoming children of God. They hate him eternally. They do not ask for pardon or for the graces to repent. Hence, they can no longer excite pity, for there is no longer in them the faintest desire to rise again. So he, he, this is why we say, even if your, your, your clergy, let's say the de- your bishop is a devil, you know what I mean? homosexual, a practicing homosexual, you don't leave the Catholic Church. There's things that you can do. You can work against him. You can work. But we, as the Carmels, we try to sanctify them. He can still go to prison. He can still go and be defrocked. You can still campaign. But for God's sakes, don't leave and use your voice, you know. But above all, uh, we are to love. That's why when, when the one priest, they brought him back from Florida to Michigan, the other Gene and I went down to the jail like about four times looking for him. Yeah. You know, pray with him, make sure he doesn't commit suicide. That's why it's so upsetting when Frankenstein fingers Fisher, the thief of the diocese, is in the jail over there in uh, Chesning. None, none of the clergy would go, the deacons or anything. And the family's saying, hey, the guy needs the sacraments. He ends up in prison. You still can't love him? Right. That's disgusting. We pay you to do that. Right. We have prison so, ministries. We have prison yeah. ministry. Yes. They didn't, we don't stop loving them. They, they you know, threw, if they're in prison, you know, and they're they're being punished by the law, so be it. They yes, threw, they should be punished, but at the same time, we don't disown he their soul. Suicide. That's right. We care about we care about the life of his soul. And that's that's what's important. And so I'm gonna end with uh, zeal for the glory of God, the salvation of souls, and this is page uh, two one three. I am I am come to cast fire on the earth and that it will I that will I but that it be kindled. Why wow, I chopped that up. Luke 12:49. Ba 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 ba. Zeal for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. Yeah. Let me try it again. I am come to cast fire on the earth and what will I but that it be kindled. Now I think this is there's a better way to say it but that's how it reads. I ain't, 
You know, I probably got a, you know, he might, he might need a cup of coffee when he wrote that, huh? Yeah, I might have. (laughs) Whoa. Okay. Minute and a half. Go ahead, John, cut her out and uh, say our prayer and we'll go from there. Okay. I'll end our podcast here now. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast. May God bless this podcast. May the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. Amen. 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 Amen.